Did you know that you can listen to every single episode of Gangry the Podcast on our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, David Gran, Janet Reitman, Tom Juneau, Eli Saslow, Ben Montgomery, Landa Gregory, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I talked with Bronwyn Dickey. Dickey is a contributing editor at the Oxford American and the author of Pitbull, The Battle Over an American Icon. That book was published in 2016. We talked about her story, The Remains, which was published by Esquire in October 2019. That story looks at forensic anthropology and one case in particular. Um, the story is about uh, a young man named Christian Gonzalez who came to this country when he was very, very young with his family and grew up in East Texas and considered himself, as did his friends and family, to be American. Um, and then he was um, deported after kind of a, a weird uh conflagration of events and uh, he was deported to Mexico which was a a country he really did not know as home at all and felt very lonely there. He tried to get back into the United States and he died in the South Texas desert. Dickie opens the remains with a scene that is very detailed showing the forensic anthropologists doing their work on the remains of Christian Gonzalez. That work was done many years ago though which means Dickie had to recreate the scene through solid reporting. As difficult as it is, recreation is one of the, the parts of writing that I enjoy the most um, because it's kind of like going on a historical scavenger hunt a little bit, trying to find the details that'll, that'll fit into the puzzle of the, the picture you're trying to build. So I spoke with um, the head of the anthropology team who had been on on the scene in 2012 who was spearheading this project back then. And then I spoke with um, one of her colleagues. I spoke with one of the students who was there. And the whole time I was asking them kind of in real time, tell me everything you remember, every detail. What was the air like? What was the the weather like? What were you feeling? What was, you know, what were some of the, the challenges or the things that surprised you? Dickie has written for Esquire, Outside, Men's Journal, Pacific Standard, The New York Times, and so many more publications. She's received the Hearst Editorial Excellence Award in Reporting and a Lowell Thomas Award in Travel Journalism. Her story, Climb Aboard, Ye Who Seek the Truth, was published by Popular Mechanics and was a finalist for the 2017 National Magazine Award in Feature Writing. We talked about that piece as well. As usual... You can find links to everything that we talk about on our website. That's at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Bronwyn, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'd love to start things off by having you uh, read a segment of the opening section from your story, The Remains, um, that ran in the October 2019 issue of Esquire. 
Sure. At last count, 730 people had died over a 14-year period in the Brooks County desert trying to enter the United States. Many of these deaths could be traced to one cruel quirk of geography, the unusual location of the Falfurius Border Patrol checkpoint. Every public American highway that radiates out from the border is monitored by U.S. Customs and Border Protection, which migrants will do just about anything to avoid. In most other Texas counties, the distance between the physical border and the highway checkpoint is usually less than five miles, which many people can walk in a few hours. Salfurius Station, which occupies a compound on US 281, sits 70 miles north of the border, a distance that can take migrants anywhere from three days to a week to cross. By the end of its first week of work, the forensics team had exhumed the remains of 68 people. It could take years to identify the bodies if that was even possible. Though the researchers did not yet know it, the bodies of almost 100 additional migrants still lay beneath their feet. Thanks for reading that. It's a, it's a really, um, I think, a really impactful uh, piece that, that you reported and, and wrote on. Can you talk a, li- a little bit about what, what the story is about? Sure. Um, the story is about... Uh, a young man named Christian Gonzalez who came to this country when he was very, very young with his family and grew up in East Texas and considered himself, as did his friends and family, to be American. Um, And then he was um, deported after kind of a a weird uh, conflagration of events. And uh, he was deported to Mexico, which was a a country he really did not know as home at all and felt very lonely there. He tried to get back into the United States and he died in the South Texas desert. And there's a team of scientists and researchers um, at Texas State University who have gone into South Texas and found the remains of many hundreds of migrants in municipal cemeteries down there. And they are working on trying to uh, do DNA testing on those remains and get those migrants back to their families. How did you learn about the the group that's doing that work, but then also about um, uh, the case that that you start off that that is referring to as case number 0383? Yeah. Um, So originally this story started because my editor, Ryan D'Agostino, um, who does kind of general project stuff at Hearst now. He used to be a senior editor at Esquire, and then he was the EIC at Popular Mechanics. Um, he approached me and asked me if I wanted to do something on forensic anthropology. Um, and he was thinking more something about the forensic anthropology research facilities, what are usually known as body farms. And I said, absolutely, I will, I will certainly write about that. Um, but we were trying to figure out how to make it relevant to what was happening in the, in the country at large. So I found when I was doing research, I found that there was this team of, of forensic anthropologists who were working on issues um, related to border deaths. And that was when there was so much um, going on about um, just the ongoing humanitarian crisis at the border and people being turned away and um, all these things going on politically. So that seemed like a really good place to dive in. And I reached out to the head anthropologist at Texas State who runs this project called Op-ID or Operation Identification. 
Um, and she told me the story of, of Christian and his family. It was the, the only time yet where the, the remains they've found and tested have belonged to someone who grew up in the United States. The, um, the, the section that you start the story with um, is an incredibly well-done scene, um, but it seems like it happened in the past, uh, obviously before you started reporting, I'm, I'm assuming. Right. This. Um, uh, so, okay, so I'm right about that. How did you go about rebuilding that scene, which I found is one of the hardest things um, for me to do oh, so when I'm reporting hard. in terms of getting the great details that you have? Can you talk about the reporting that went into that to be able to then create that that opening scene of the story? Right. It's uh, so difficult. Um, though, interestingly enough, as difficult as it is, recreation is one of the, the parts of writing that I enjoy the most um, because it's kind of like going on a historical scavenger hunt a little bit, trying to find the details that'll that'll fit into the puzzle of the the picture you're trying to build. Um, So I spoke with, um, I I basically went back and this whole project was extremely well documented, though it involved several different universities coming together to collaborate. So I spoke with um, the head of the anthropology team who had been on on the scene in 2012 who was spearheading this project back then and then i spoke with um, one of her colleagues i spoke with one of the students who was there and the whole time i was asking them kind of in real time tell me everything you remember every detail what was the air like what was the the weather like what were you feeling what was you know what were some of the the challenges or the things that surprised you and i was trying to get very granular i was trying to get you know those little things that people um, might not even know they remember um, I, I know it's hard to kind of explain and I, I wasn't able to get a ton of those because so many years had already passed but um, one of the the anthropologists said you know she just remembered like the sweat and she remembered that there was a very soft breeze but it was this oppressive heat in South Texas and it was kind of an overcast day um, and then someone else, I, I, I haven't looked at the story in a little while, so I can't remember the, right. the specific things, but, um, but I'm always trying to get things like that. So I was looking at weather reports. I was looking at even like weather, weather patterns in South Texas over a period of months. I was looking at, um, all the photos and the documents that they took when they were doing it. Thank God anthropologists and archaeologists map and grid and photograph absolutely everything so I had some photos to work from and I also went to the site myself in April um, when I was down there and just kind of walked the cemetery and tried to get a feel for what that was that would have been like Um, so I was trying to do a little bit of everything Um, they've also gone back to the site multiple times so in, in succeeding years. So there was just a lot to draw from in terms of how people were feeling about it. And there were lots of people working there. So I was kind of going from collective memory. Right. I find myself anytime I, I, I'm asking those super granular, like detailed questions that um, I, I sometimes have to embarrass, I embarrass myself by asking them because the, the person I'm talking oh, to absolutely. is like, how, how, what, what do you do when do you give, do you give them a heads up and say, I'm going to ask some really, really weird questions? I do. I actually do. I, I, I say, you know, th- there are going to be so many questions. It's going, it's going to seem absurd. Um, and it's going to be about stuff that you probably think is 
completely insignificant. And what I'm trying to do is is create a picture on the page of what someone would see if this were if they were watching a documentary. So all those little details about the room you were sitting in or or the way you were gesturing or what someone else was eating or all those things that don't seem to, um, you know, be important to the story maybe in your mind are very important to the story in mine because they help people feel that they're there. So, yes, I give them a warning. I say this is going to sound absurd. Um, it's going it, I hope it doesn't feel obtrusive or intrusive. Um, but, but that's the way it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah, I just try to, I think someone, I can't remember if it was, I was talking to Chris Jones or someone recently who said, imagine I'm on your shoulder and that you're wearing a GoPro and tell me what I'm seeing. Oh, that's a great, I thought that was a really good approach because especially now, you know, with the, with tech and everything now, people automatically know, know what that means and they kind of understand where, yeah. And Chris is just about the best at getting those insane details for everything that he writes. Unbelievable. So, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Oh, he's great. Yeah. You mentioned uh, a process. Uh, you mentioned a story. You mentioned a in the story a process of cleaning a skeleton um, and that it can take some yeah. time getting used to. Did you witness that yeah. process? And what was that like? I was so? in the lab. Oh, I was in the lab. I didn't. And I saw various parts of things being done. But when I was there, um, the part of the process, because it's an ongoing project, when I was there, the part of things they were doing that the students and the scientists were doing were cataloging um, personal effects and photographing those. And so um, the the head anthropologist of OpID, Kate Bradley, she walked me through the facility and showed me kind of how every single part happens, even if she wasn't physically doing it. She was describing it in great detail. So I went into the room where the kind of steam jacketed kettles are. And there were remains in the kettles then, but, you know, they didn't like pop them out for me to see. And I certainly didn't ask. There were, you know, there was a um, body bag on the floor with remains in it. You know, there were, it's all in a state of progress. So that she described to me in terms of exactly how the, the process happens. And, and that was when she said, you know, that takes a lot of getting used to. And that's usually when people know whether they can handle it or not. And she said a number of students have had to leave, you know, because it just it kind of violates a lot of what we tend to believe about our about the sanctity of our own species, um, even though it's in the in the name of science and very helpful. Right. Right. Um the story, the way it's written, um, Christian does not start out in the story as Christian. He starts out basically mm-hmm. as number 0383. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then maybe a third, a quarter of the way, a third of the way through is when we, we learn who he is. And I remember when I read it being like, oh my gosh, that's so, it, it, I don't know what it did. It kind of gave it a new um, uh, level, I think. Um is that how you envisioned writing the story all along? Was that was that your idea? I'm going to kind of have this little bit of a twist halfway through? Or, or... Oh, that, that's so kind of you to say. Um, because when I look back at this story, it, and it's kind of the way I look back on almost everything I do, all I see are the missed opportunities and the things <laughs> right. I wish I had done better. And, and to me, this story reads like, oh, it's maybe a third of where I wanted it to be eventually. Mm. Um 
and again, dead, working on deadline, you just have to you have to kind of abandon the thing when it when it has to ship. Um, but the way I kind of conceived of it is because so much of this story is about burial and, um, you know, I don't want to be too heavy handed and say resurrection, but <laughs> so much is about the significance of burial and kind of the, the unmarked grave versus an actual burial and a funeral and the significance of remains and what we do with them, that I wanted that to be kind of the, the bracketing. So he, in the beginning, he's coming out as an anonymous number. And by the end, you know, and then, you know, we kind of get to know him a little. And by the end, he's going back into the ground as Christian Gonzalez with a family around him, you know, in his hometown of Palestine, Texas. Yeah. I know you mentioned uh, in the emails um, when we were setting up this talk that you were kind of heartbroken over the end of this piece. Mm. Did I read? Is, is that was it because you felt like you, you didn't get where you hoped it would go? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. I, I I think. Um, and it's hard for any. It's hard for any journalist with something. I, I think this was. There was so much emotional gravity to it um and what had happened had devastated this family so much i wanted to give this piece kind of like the 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 biggest grandest most thoroughly um i i was about to say excavated but you know i i wanted to give it the the very best i could do but deadlines are deadlines right and you can only do so much in in the time you're given any of us any of us um and so things being what they were and this was also kind of a complicated piece and it was it was assigned for one magazine and then it was switched to another and um and so the the focus shifted and there there was just kind of a lot going on behind the scenes um and so to to me it felt a little rushed but every journalist feels feels rushed you know every journalist feels they don't have enough time so i yeah but i never i never feel that i'm able to do enough i i never feel that i have done enough all i see are the things i wish i had done what was it like when you re- reached out to christian's family um how did you get in touch with them and were they I mean, were it was this something they wanted to talk about or, or cuz i could see it being difficult for them in some ways? Very difficult. And, you know, I had to navigate things that I had never had to navigate before in terms of writing about people who are undocumented. Um, so uh, Kate Bradley at Texas State gave me um, Zyra Gonzalez's email address, and I emailed her um, and asked if she would be willing to talk. And she said she would be fine with that. She had spoken to their local paper about it. And I think um, maybe Forensics Magazine had done a small feature. Um, so she had spoken about it. And she, I think part of it for her was also, she wanted people to know what had happened to her brother. And she wanted people to know about this project. And she wanted to help other families of people who had died crossing the border and get the information out there. So I tried to be as, as I always am, as sensitive as possible, realizing, you know, uh, realizing that this is one of the worst things that had ever happened to their family and probably the, probably the worst 
you know, that would in terms of he had gone missing and they had no idea what happened to him for five years, which was just excruciating for them. So she was very receptive about it, but I wanted to be as respectful and accommodating as, as possible. Um, aside from, from having to work uh, relatively quickly, what were, what were some of the other bigger challenges that you faced when you were reporting uh, or even then writing the piece? Mm. Oh, so many. Um, <laughs> so many. Well, one, for one, Zyra was the only member of the family who wanted to uh, put the story out there publicly in this way and be interviewed for it because this, the issue of being undocumented was so sensitive. And I completely, completely understood that. But I, so the whole way through, my main priority was not writing anything that was going to endanger or jeopardize the safety of the other family members who were undocumented and didn't want to, to speak. So it, for instance, like the names of their parents aren't, aren't in the piece, even though I definitely know their names and, and lots more about them. Um, I didn't want to put anything in there that was going to jeopardize their safety, given the political climate and the ice raids and things that were happening um, that were making them even more frightened to, to be undocumented in America. So that was kind of the main challenge is thinking about honoring the, the facts of the story and doing the job that I was there to do. And also realizing that every story any of us do has human consequences or can have human consequences and very serious ones. And we may get to, to walk away from the story and start another, but the people in our stories, they don't get to walk away. Like they are living with that for forever. So I wanted to, you know, honor, honor my professionalism while also um, thinking about kind of thinking five steps ahead about how things could play out, which is why, you know, to me, some, some passages read a little vague um, and because they had to be. Well, we're going to take a short break. Um, when uh, we've been talking about uh, uh, Bronwyn's story, The Remains, which ran in uh, the October 2019 issue of Esquire. Um, uh, we'll take a short break. When we return, uh, we'll have more with Bronwyn. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangri the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism Program at Fairfield University. The Bachelor of Arts degree in Digital Journalism is a rigorous 12-course program designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to take part in today's quickly changing media world. The podcast is also brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University. The college grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. To learn more about the Digital Journalism Program and the College of Arts and Sciences, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis, and I've been talking with Bronwyn Dickey, a contributing editor at the Oxford American and the author of Pitbull, The Battle Over an American Icon, 
Bronwyn, you wrote a story a couple years ago about conspiracy theory, about a conspiracy theorist convention that took place on a cruise ship. Um, that story uh, was titled Climb Aboard, Ye Who Seek the Truth, and it ran in Popular Mechanics uh, and was a finalist for the National Magazine Award. Um, can you talk about how, like, how that story came about? Sure. That was another um, another story I did for Ryan. We had kind of been looking at a, at a number of options that hadn't panned out. And on some blog, I think, I saw that there was this going to be a, a cruise for conspiracy theorists. Um, and I had I was working on my book at the time, and I had been researching a lot about science denialism and kind of um, conspiracy theories and um, the the kind of um, the the psychological ideation of what makes people buy into conspiracy theories. And I was so interested in it as a subject. So when I saw that this cruise was happening, it seemed like, a you know, you always say the story will write itself and it never, ever does. But it seemed like something that was that would make an incredible narrative. One, because it was in an absurd location, a confined space bracketed by the kind of the dates of a trip. And then you had this whole community of people who all believe very different things in this one space. So um, I just approached him with it and said, Hey, I, I think what I, what I said was, are you sending anyone on this? Because it did not occur to me that he might send me on that. Right. Um, I was very, I was very shy about asking for for things, or you know, even pitching or or whatever um, back then. So, and he said, "Yeah, you go." And so that's that's how that happened, and it did not pan out the way we thought it would. Right. I was going to say this is this is one of those stories where you, as a reporter, go in thinking that it's going to turn out a certain way, uh, and then somehow the tables are turned. Um, when did right. you realize this this was not going to be what you thought it would be? And then how did you handle well, that? Oh, well, so initially I had conceived of it as being a very lighthearted um, piece that it, it was going to be for popular mechanics. So it had to have a scientific basis. I couldn't imply that I co-signed any of these beliefs, but I also wanted to be a very good-natured um kind of meeting people where they are kind of piece of the type that, you know, Taffy Ackner does so well. Um, whenever you read her stuff, you don't believe she's kind of signing on to these belief systems, but she's not shooting fish in a barrel and just writing things that are light to make fun of people. She mm -hmm. kind of meets them where they are, right? right. So she, there's a generosity about what she does, even when it's light. So, um, I thought I would, I could do kind of the same thing and talk about belief formation and how we all come to believe what we believe and where we get our information from and thinking maybe, maybe it'll just be like people talking about like the grassy knoll or aliens or whatever. And they're playing shuffleboard and they're drinking Mai Tais and everyone's having a good time. And if that can happen here, you know, what does that say about the rest of us? And that is not what happened. So the first night was really great. The first night, everyone was welcoming. People were so kind. I was really excited. I was having great conversations with people. They were being very open. And then by the next morning, things had started to curdle um, based on, I think, someone had looked up popular mechanics and found the 9-11 
conspiracy debunking issue that they had done several years before that and became irate. And that guy, um, Len Horowitz, approached me the next day at something and said, you know, if you if you do anything to smear me, I'll I can't remember what I said. It was like I'll I won't stop until I've exposed you and your paymasters or whatever. And it, I mean, it just it went from zero to ninety in a space of a couple of hours. And then we started getting disinvited. There were a couple of other journalists on the trip. We started getting asked to to leave things or to not attend things. Um, we started getting kind of this very confrontational stuff from people who had been very nice to us. And it started to get a little scary in that it escalated to two people challenging each other to a fight and me being kind of like pinned up against a wall between some people. And it was, it became like a physically frightening confined space to be in with people who were deeply suspicious, even paranoid about each other and their motives. Right. Yeah. And, and we know a lot of this because this is the story. I mean, this is what you end up yeah. writing about, right? You write in the first person. Was right. that, uh, right. I, I'm assuming you did not go into it thinking you were going to write first person, straight up first person. Um, no, I and, thought I, if anything, I was going to be kind of like one of those very transparent, um, you know, just kind of touch point first person to kind of have the reaction shot, right? Um, or the kind of transparent tour guide through the world. I did not at all. And I was very sad that at first when I sat out, sat down to write it because of everything that had happened, I was very sad that I had gotten dragged into the story in a way that the most dramatic events happened around like me and how I was perceived. That made me very uncomfortable, but that's what happened. So I had to kind of go with that. Was that a challenge for you writing first person? Um, it was in that space for, for that assignment. And in that space, yes, I've certainly written personal essays when I was younger and, um, I did an MFA program where I did a fair amount of first person writing, but as a working journalist, you know, on assignment for Popular Mechanics, the last thing you think you're going to do is start off, you know, a piece or write any piece so heavily first person. So I didn't, I was not super comfortable with it. But when the events are what they are, you you have to be honest about what the situation is. Right. When you turned the story in, and I'm assuming you kept in touch with, with your editor uh, as everything yeah. was happening. Yeah. Um, did you, did you, were you happy with the first draft that you turned in? No. Oh God. No. I think, I think we did seven drafts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I worked with a, um, a really wonderful guy named Sean Manning. who's now a book editor. Um, and because there were so many moving pieces, we were trying all kinds of things. So I was trying all kinds of different structures. I was trying different scenes. And the the main problem I was having is that, that everything could be a scene because the events started to get so absurd. You know, literally going to the salad bar became a scene. Everything <laughs> could be a scene. And so I didn't, there's a great quote, I believe from Walker Evans, the famous documentary photographer. And he said, a photographer has to be able to see and he has to be able to choose. And I was having a lot of trouble with the choosing. 
you know, I could see possibilities everywhere and I really was having trouble choosing. So there were lots of iterations um, and lots of drafts trying to get that balance. The, um, did you ever hear, did you ever have feedback after the story ran? No. Well, yeah, well, from from the people on the boat. Uh, yeah, and that's I'm generally thinking that, <laughs> or, but uh, like otherwise as well. <laughs> in the wider world, people respond really positively to it, which I was so grateful for. Um, and the the folks on the ship, you know, predictably, um, Lynn and Sherry, who are prominent characters, they wrote a very long screed about how I was guilty of war crime. Oh my. Um, and I was, who I was being paid by George, George Soros or something. It, I haven't looked at it in ages and ages. It's a very, 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 very long screen. I'm sure you can find it if you Google it. <laughs> um, so they were extremely angry and I think they created Twitter accounts that kind of trolled me for a little bit. Um, but other than that, I really didn't hear from anyone, um, which is sad. Some of the people on the trip were lovely. So I, I don't want to give the impression that they were all, all like that. They certainly were not. You said, you said you were working on, on your book at the same time you did that. I'm, I'm curious how, how I, just, <laughs> <laughs> I had just finished it. Thank goodness. By right. the time the trip rolled around, I hadn't, by the time I was assigned to go, by the time it rolled around, I had finished. Thank goodness. Um, but I was, I was nervous myself and preoccupied with all that going on. So in one way, this was a wonderful break from that because it was such a different thing than I had been working on. Um, if, if it hadn't been, I don't think I could have done two, two things at once. I'm not very good at that. I wish I were. Yeah. Do you, um, do you prefer book writing or, or shorter magazine, um, style stuff? Yeah, I I really feel that magazine work is my habitat. I think everyone kind of has their natural habitat or their natural links. And um, I feel I'm much better and my work is much tighter at a, at a shorter length. Um, though I am the process of writing a book completely changed me as a writer and uh, especially as a reporter. Um, and made me kind of grow beyond what I even thought was possible. But the amount of pressure I put on myself, that the idea that you're going to create this discrete thing, which is going to be packaged and sold and then publicly evaluated for months on end, is, you know, frightening. Right, <laughs> if you're yes. kind of like me, it's like a frightening thing. Whereas, you know, it, and also I had spent eight years of my life doing it. So my, so much of my headspace is just, you know, completely taken up with it. And it consumed my life for such a long time that I really like the, the rhythms of, of shorter work, six months story, eight months in a story. And then you have this confined space and you have to create this thing within that space. If I'm let, if I'm let to, someone lets me unspool time out forever and unspool pages out forever, I'll just kind of like keep going until I drop. Was your book Pitbull, was that um, kind of a product of your MFA program or your MFA experience? Not at all. Oh, wow. Um, Really? No, 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 no. Um, I wrote mainly, I mean, I don't even remember the stuff that I wrote. I I think I wrote mainly kind of personal or like cultural 
criticism kind of stuff in my MFA. I didn't really know. I was one of the few people in that program who didn't have a book idea already kind of about. I, I just knew I wanted to learn how to do this thing better. <laughs> so I was kind of like groping around in the dark. Um, and I finished that program in 2007 and finished my, I think got my degree in 2009. And then I didn't, I didn't sign the contract for this book. I wasn't even, I never even thought I'd write a book until 2012. Oh, right. Yeah. I, I would give anything to go back and do my MFA again um, because I was a newspaper reporter who went to do an MFA and then I wrote memoir. <laughs> I didn't do any reporting at uh. all, um, which is what everyone was doing at the, at the time. Everybody was doing personal essay memoir. Um, I would give anything to take those three years and do a piece of narrative journalism, but it is what it is and I'm, I'm where I'm at now, so I'll take it. So. Right. But you're so lucky that by the time you got there, you already had the reporting background. I was, you know, trying yeah. to learn all at the same time, and, and it was incredibly daunting. It still is. I feel daunted every day by this job. Right, right. I would say I did not. I was not that great of a reporter. I had four years at a local newspaper, so I was a little bit okay at that. Okay. <laughs> I became yeah. better by talking yeah. to people like you and right, right. <laughs> so you, you had the experience of working in a newsroom. You knew how to write all kinds of stuff to deadline. You knew how to ask other people for support. You knew how to cultivate sources. All those things. Right. Yeah. So that that stuff is solid gold. It my greatest helpful. regret is that I never worked at a local paper. Yeah. That is my greatest professional regret. Yeah. It can be. You can learn a lot in a very short amount of time. Um, a, a lot of your work is being done as a freelancer. Is that, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, All of it. What's, 100%. <laughs> what's the what's the market like? Um, I know we've seen a lot of. Um, at least on the sports end, uh, with ESPN, the magazine shutting down and what's happened at Sports Illustrated. Um, and then Deadspin. And then and Deadspin, I mean, right? Yeah. Um, so not just actual print even, right? I mean, right. so... so and the prestige sites, yeah. Right. So, I mean, so what's it like uh, for, for you, uh, for someone who's dependent upon this? Um, oh, it's very frightening. It's very frightening. Um, and if anyone... I, have you spoken to anyone yet who isn't terrified? Because I would love to know who they are. No, no, <laughs> no. Um, um, we're, yeah, it's very hard. I, the network of people being worked with seems to be shrinking, even as the people who want to do this work is growing. Thanks in part, thank goodness, to like long form and you guys and long reads and kind of all these, these, um, who who knew that um, that these aggregations of long form journalism would would spread the popularity thereof, um, which is amazing. But so the number of people who want to do this work is growing, and the number of places to kind of hang it are shrinking, and the number of writers being worked with seems to be shrinking because I think with fewer with fewer pages available. Uh, editors are kind of willing to take fewer risks. Um, and so, you know, it's it's terrifying. On the other hand, I'm very encouraged, even though it's not my format, um, I'm very, very encouraged by kind of the interest in long nonfiction narratives in general, like look at the explosion of podcasting. You know, people want long stories. They want to be with characters for a long time. Um, so or sites like The Atavist, newsletters like 
Sunday long read, these kinds of things like that makes me feel really good about the fact that people absolutely want these stories out there. And if that's the case, there will always be places to publish them. What's harder for me, you know, not having a staff contract and not having um, even a, you know, a multi-decade reporting um, career behind me is that I'm just, I don't think I'm usually the first person people look at for, for lots of things. The staff contract people are pretty, pretty much like, you know, that's, that's their real house. So I don't know. I don't know. How, how does it feel for you? I, I don't know. I, I, um, we'll, we'll see. I mean, it's, you know, that I, I think everything's changing. Um, and I think that's always been the case. Um, and I'm hopeful that at the very least a new perhaps story format will, will arise. Um, I've been told by a lot of people that the book industry is actually still pretty strong. And so if you prefer to get back into the book, you know, do another book, uh, that that's actually, um, doing all right right now. So that's, that's, that's good to know too. So for sure. Yep. And bookstores apparently are, are coming back. Thank goodness. Right. Right. Definitely. People want stories, I think. And, you know, not to like go off into onto a weird tangent, but I think it says so much about kind of the world of artifice and like this, the curated museum of the self that we get through social media and all the things we're concerned about with fake news and et cetera, that people want these in-depth true stories about, you know, what it means to be alive on this planet in various ways. I think that's incredibly encouraging. And that's one thing about our uh, wretched species that has not changed over the millennia. And that makes me feel good or comforted. Right. Definitely. Definitely. Do you have anything that you're working on that you can talk about right now? Not that I can talk about. Oh, that's usually the answer when I ask that question. So I I should probably stop asking it at the end of my podcast episodes. But yeah, but I'm always, um, but these are two assigned pieces. So, um, in terms of passion projects, I'm still looking for for what that next like a thing that I'll become obsessed with will be. So if anyone has any great story ideas for out there, just send them my way. Right, right, awesome. Well, Bronwyn, thank you so much for joining Gangery the podcast. It has been uh, absolutely great talking with you. Thank you so much. I've been talking with Bronwyn Dickey, a contributing editor at the Oxford American and the author of Pitbull, The Battle Over an American Icon. She's also written for Esquire, Outside, Men's Journal, Pacific Standard, Popular Mechanics, The New York Times, and so many more publications. For links to everything that we've talked about and so much more, go to our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y Podcast. Gangery the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by Fairfield University's Digital Journalism Program 
and the College of Arts and Sciences. Our music comes from Audionautics. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.